Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 20. And as I've been reminding you week after week after week after week after week, the, uh, the people, uh, the Hebrew people that God is bringing out of Egypt at this point in Exodus are still in slavery in Egypt. But we are really getting close to them finally getting out. And it's, you know, how long do you have to wait? And, but it's, it's getting to be time. So that's where we're um, getting to today and in the weeks to come. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us. God, we do, we do pray that you would help us as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, to not merely hear it and forget it. God, we pray that your word and your spirit would be life-changing in our lives, individually and together as your people. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is starting in verse 12. I actually want to start back just a little bit before this in verse 11, and we'll pick up on the slide when we hit verse 12. Talking about how to eat the Passover meal, which he's given instructions for, and says, this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And here we go. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought you your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Turning then to Mark 14, verses 27, 27 to 31. As uh, Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the Passover meal, He then says to them the night before he goes to the cross, he says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and it is also the Sunday before Valentine's Day, so you might be expecting that we will reference those two things this morning. And, uh, well, those have just been referenced. That's all you're going to hear on those. Okay. Instead, we're actually going to spend our time this morning looking at chapter 16 of the book of Revelation, which is a chapter that um, you really need to spend a month in it at least, and yet it's not a kind of chapter you want to spend a month in, <laughs> and you'll see why here in a little bit. This is a, um, this is a chapter that deals with God pouring out his bowls of wrath on the earth. And so we see all kinds of uh, judgment and destruction, and uh, we see people gnawing at sores in their mouth, and we see uh, like demonic frogs coming out of the mouths of the unholy trinity, and we see Armageddon getting mentioned here, and we're like, ah, there's so much, ah, <laughs> throughout this whole thing. Um, which is why you both need a month to go through it all, uh, and kind of unpack what all this is talking about, but also it's the kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to spend a month in that. We're going to do what we can today. <laughs> We're going to move on next week. Um, but before we even read it, I just want to remind you uh, that this is a vision. This is a revelation uh, that has been given to John, and uh, a lot of the language that we hear and the uh, images that are given as stuff that shows up throughout the whole rest of the Bible, but it's also given in kind of this dream logic form. And so, like, when we look back at, uh, at Pharaoh at the, at the end of Genesis, not in the book of Exodus, but in Genesis, the Pharaoh in Egypt, who was having dreams, and Joseph is called in to interpret the dreams, and he's like, oh, I was dreaming about these cows, and some were fat, and some were skinny, and here's what happened. And... Joseph knows what the dream means, and um, and it doesn't mean you guys should be on the lookout for cows. It was, no, there's something else that it, this symbolizes. This is going to talk about the years of plenty and the years of famine that are coming. But uh, similarly, in Daniel, when you see vision language used, you have these... Uh, uh, <laughs> is it Nebuchadnezzar that has a dream of the statue? I think that's right. This, uh, this huge statue... Um, that's made up of all these different parts. And so it's like the gold head and different metal body parts and down to the feet, partly iron, partly clay, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, so this is what's going to happen. We need, to, we need to be on the lookout for this giant statue made of these things. And when we see that, we'll know that this vision has uh, come to pass. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, we're not looking for that statue. What we're looking for, though, is... The, what the statue is pointing to and what this statue is about. And so this is a visionary representation of these empires that are going to come. And there's going to be one that's kind of like a gold in its uh, glory, etc. And you get down to the one that is like brittle with the feet mixed with um, iron and clay, kind of strong but also brittle. And, uh, and what all that represents, the kingdoms that are going to fall and the kingdom of God that is going to stand. And... Um, and so on the one hand, it's like, well, we don't look for this specific thing that was in the vision. But on the other hand, what the vision shows us is more real than what we often see. And so it's not like we look at this and go, oh, that stuff's not real. It's like, actually, this is more real than what, you're, what you would see with your eyes. So when these kingdoms rise, um, like that vision 
explains it better than the people who are living in those kingdoms could see apart from that vision. Does that make sense? Same kind of thing when we're going through Revelation. It's not that, you know, oh, all these things, they're just, they're just symbols and so they don't, they're not real. It's like, no, they're, they're actually more real. <laughs> and there's a way that you, can, uh, that you can communicate more through these images uh, than you could with a, um, than even with like a video camera if you were to video the things that were to happen. Okay, with all that in mind, so kind of having that the vision uh, idea, the dream logic sort of idea in mind, and also the this is going to be picking up stuff from the whole rest of the Bible. We're going to read Revelation 16, and as we do so, I want you to just be thinking of what else in the Bible does this remind you of? Always a great game to play when reading anything in the Bible, but especially in Revelation. What else does this remind me of? Because it's probably uh, other stuff going on. Um, that's getting picked up here. All right. Revelation chapter 16. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy prophets, or your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. See what I mean? The take a month to unpack this at least. Um, and yet there's 
not a lot of pleasant stuff going on here. So, um, so we're going to run through some of this stuff. And uh, first of all, let me just remind you what's going on structurally in the whole book this far. So we've got, there were the seven seals, and then there were seven trumpets, and then there's the seven bowls. And that's what we're looking at right now. And we talked about how the seven seals kind of gave us more information on what's coming. The seven uh, trumpets are like a <laughs> alarm, wake up. And then the seven bowls are like, this is it. We talked last week about how those kind of relate to um, birth pangs. And you've got like the, the Braxton Hicks contractions that start early. And then uh, you have the, um, the more you're in active labor and then you're actually having the baby. The seven bowls are like, we're having the baby. <laughs> Like, it's, it's time now. And it all is tied together, but it's um, and all part of the same thing. But this is where we are now, is uh, at kind of this day of the Lord um, moment. Like, we are right there. And, um, and then structurally, we have, um, we saw in the seven uh, seals, we go through, and there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, pause, and then you get the seventh. And then the, the trumpet, same thing. One, three, five, six, pause, and the seventh. And both times you get this pause before the seventh one. It's like, who's going to be able to stand? Like when that final day comes, who can stand? And so you get this description of uh, who can stand and how they need uh, to repent and those who are uh, in Christ, etc., etc. And with this, we get the same kind of thing. Only it's very short, <laughs> that little pause between uh, the 6th and the 7th. Um, and we will get to that in a minute. So know that's coming. But taking it more in order, do you notice what all is uh, the bowls are being poured out on? The first it's on the land, and then it's on the sea, and then it's on the rivers and the springs of water. After the first three, and you're looking at God pouring out his judgment on the land and the sea and the rivers and springs of water. And isn't there a part of you that's kind of like, well, who does he think he is that he gets to do this? And who, who does he think he is? He's the one who created the land and the sea and the rivers and springs of water, right? These are all his. And... Uh, and he is, like, in this, it's this, like, cleaning up of his good world that he created that has been vandalized and destroyed in so many ways. And so, um, you know, I showed you before a, a video of a guy doing a painting restoration where you see an old painting that had been just it gotten filthy. It had been... Uh, kind of abandoned and misused and, and was um, broken. The canvas was even ripped into multiple pieces. And this guy takes the whole thing, and he, by the end of the video, has restored the painting. And you're like, that is beautiful. But most of the video is him doing things that look destructive as he is getting rid of all the gunk and the grime that have covered up the beauty of the painting as he is scraping off all of the, uh, the things that people have added to the back of the canvas at previous times that have not helped but have actually made it worse. And so he's 
getting rid of all the things that have ruined the painting so that it can be made new. When we're looking at uh, God pouring out his wrath on creation, you're like, why would you do that? And it's because of what we have seen throughout the whole rest of the Bible in the way that there has been sin from the beginning that has been really um, vandalizing God's good world. And in order to restore his good creation, he has to get rid of the evil. And this is one of the things that we uh, look at like as a, I mean, just a general question is kind of the, why does God even allow evil? And you look around the world and you say, that, see, there's so much that's so wrong. Why doesn't he just do something about it? Why didn't he get rid of it all? And Revelation 16 is what says one day he will. And so one of the things we see throughout the Bible is God talking about his, uh, how he's slow to anger and how he's patient with us, not wanting uh, people to perish, but wanting people to be saved. And so his slowness, his putting off this uh, judgment until this day of the Lord, um, even that, that slowness is, uh, is a part of his love and mercy. And so is the judgment itself saying, well, I'll wait, but not forever. At some point, evil will be dealt with finally. And this is why uh, we see then the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O Lord, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty, true and just, are your judgments. Even the altar is responding. <laughs> Can altars talk? But um, I think this is actually taking us back to Revelation chapter 6 when we are having the seals being open. And in the fifth seal, I think it is, we have 6 verses 9 and 10. And it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so you have people who have been um, who have been maintaining this, uh, the word of God and, and the testimony of God telling people who Jesus is by word and deed and who have been killed for it. And this vision depicts them as under the altar and crying out to God, how long are you going to let this go on? Aren't you at some point going to get rid of all those who are destroying your world and your people? And then here we see it starting to happen. And when it's starting to happen, we even hear this voice from the altar. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we get into the fourth, fifth, and sixth. We see now the um, bowls poured out on the sun and on the throne of the beast 
on the great river Euphrates. And uh, there is stuff going on with each of those. But what I want to point out is with the uh, fourth and fifth, I want you to notice the response of, uh, of people. It says, They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. And then in the next one, it says, People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Do you hear this? It's almost like this, <laughs> there was still opportunity. You look at uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Like There's this opportunity for him to repent, and he doesn't. He just continually hardens his heart. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It's like, no, I am just going to be mad at God about whatever's going on. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn to him. And it's this refusal to repent that is the problem. It's this wanting to be in charge of the world and being mad at God because we're like, if I were God, I would do things differently. This is, you look at the beginning of the book of Job and Job undergoes all kinds of suffering and then his wife comes to him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, doesn't that make sense to do in the circumstances? And Job's like, no, that doesn't make sense to do in the circumstances. I'm paraphrasing quite a bit here, but you can read it. Uh, it's like, no. That doesn't make sense. Should we accept the good and not the bad? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But that's what people do all the time. We charge God with wrongdoing. You don't know what you're doing. This is not the way to do it. If I were running the whole universe, it would be different. If I were running the universe, this wouldn't happen to me or my loved one or in this particular place and time, et cetera, et cetera. And we have all these ideas of ways that we would do it if we were in charge. And that's been the way since the beginning. You look at uh, the parable Jesus tells of the, when we call the parable of the prodigal son, and uh, I hope you've read the uh, the book Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And it really points out in there how there are two sons and they're both lost. They're both separated from the father uh, at points in this uh, parable. And that both of them uh, kind of have this way of uh, of going about that. And that both of them, the father goes out to them both of them, he tries to welcome them in. And one of them repents and comes in and is welcomed as a son, as a part of the family, and is, uh, enjoys the celebration. And one of them, at the end of the parable, is still on the outside refusing to come in. Because the way he's looking at it is his father isn't doing it right. If I were in charge, this is not the way I'd do it. And so because of his refusal to repent, he's still on the outside. And this is what we see uh, being depicted here, that no matter how bad it is to be on the outside, people are like, I would rather be on the outside 
than to say that your way is right. Not going to do it. I think I'm right and you're wrong. The end. Well, have it your way. I mean, this is what um, C.S. Lewis says that the, in the end, there will only be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those at the end, God says, have it your way. So this is uh, what we see is God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour this out on all that is um, destroy my good creation. And then we have people who are saying, I'd rather do that. I would rather continue destroying your creation. I'd rather continue to fight against you than to humble myself and repent, recognizing you as the one true uh, living God, creator of heaven and earth, creator of my life, sustainer of my life. This is um, then after, after the sixth, we get this little break where we do see what's happening here is this gathering together of everybody. The gathering together of everybody who wants to fight against God. You want to fight against God? Come on, let's do it. Now's the time. We'll do it together. What if, what if we all got together and fought against God with all the strength we can muster together? You think we have a chance then? And it's, it's one of those that if you have a really inflated view of man and a really diminished view of God, you go, yeah, I think we could do it. If you have any, even the smallest concept of how big God is and how small we are in comparison, it's laughable, isn't it? That if, oh, well, if we all got together, we could do it. <laughs> no, no, you couldn't. And this is the same kind of thing, what we see in, uh, like what we saw in the children's sermon with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's like, it doesn't matter how many prophets are on the other side. That God's not real. And there's st- you stand no chance. I don't care if you think you've got him outnumbered. You don't. It's real lopsided here and not the way you think it is. So they, all right, gather together. Let's show me what you got. And so they get together, uh, and it even says they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, which, just a little side note on this, um, Armageddon, it's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole weird thing going on uh, language-wise there. Um, it's written in Greek, but he's like, it's in Hebrew called this, but then in, anyway. There's this place called Megiddo, and uh, I've been there. It's pretty neat looking huge plain and not much mountain in that area. And so it's like, well, the Armageddon actually means mountain of Megiddo. Like that's what it means in Hebrew. So you're like, well, if it means mountain of Megiddo, why are we talking about a mountain here? I think there are two possibilities. One is this is where a lot of the battles in the Old Testament are fought. And so it's just a, all right, this is where (laughs) battle's going to happen. This makes sense for that place. But there are two kind of candidates for mountains, even in this giant area of huge plain, open plain area. One is Megiddo itself, which is only at all a mountain. It's only elevated because of how many times the city has been destroyed and rebuilt on top of itself. And so when you're standing in you know, the latest iteration of Megiddo, you are up above the plain. 
And so it has kind of gone up there. So it could be in reference to that as just a reference of uh, kind of the number of times that people have been destroyed in this place. And it's like, that's where we're going to gather together to say, let's uh, see what we have to throw against God. Hmm, maybe not a great idea. But the other mountain that is a possibility is when you're standing at Megiddo uh, and you're looking out at the plain, there's like this one really big hill that just is sitting out there kind of on its own. It's sort of weird. There's just this big hill there. And that hill is the one that we know of as Mount Carmel, which is the place where Elijah has the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And so either way you take this, like are we talking about the mountain of Megiddo of the town itself, or are we talking about the mountain that you see from Megiddo, which is Mount Carmel? And it's like all of these are sort of references to things where it's like you should know better than to try to go up against the true and living God. If you look at Psalm 2, that's the whole idea of Psalm 2, is you have all these people who are um, kings of the earth who are like, we're going to uh, go against this God of Israel. It's like, well, that's not going to go well for you. You look at Psalm 46, same kind of thing. And this whole be still and know that I'm God, it's like stop fighting against God. He's going to win. This, the earth is his. Uh, this is what we were looking at in uh, Psalm 24 in our call to worship. The earth belongs to the Lord, everything in it, the world and all its people. And so then we get the question, who may go up on the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy temple? Only those with clean hands and pure hearts who have not worshipped idols nor made promises in the name of a false god. This takes us back to that pause that I was telling you about where there's this between the sixth and seventh. What do we do? How do we not do what those who are destroying the earth are doing? How do we not do what the, um, the people who are fighting against God do? What, what do we do? That's where it says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. That's it. That one little, little line there. So what do you need to do? Stay awake and remain clothed. Now, how many of you think that it means that, like you should never sleep again and you should never change your clothes? You should just wear whatever you're wearing now for, forever. That's what it's talking about. No. Remember, this goes back to other things we've seen before. Remember who this letter is written to initially and the first people who would have received this letter. And it's those um, seven churches, right? And as you go through there, in chapters 2 and 3, we get these letters to the seven churches. And in chapter 3, we have a letter to the church in Sardis, where it says things like this. Um, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Um, and it continues even talking about clothes there. So you can, but also in the two letters later, you get the message to um, the church in Laodicea. And this is in 3.17. He says to them, just after saying he's going to spit them out of, their, out of his mouth for their lukewarmness, he says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and gave and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does this mean? Who is this message to? This is a message to the church. To wake up. To stay clothed. And to, uh, and not only to wake up and to get clothed, but to stay awake. To remain clothed. You hear that? This is an ongoing life with Jesus, an ongoing life of repentance, of continually turning away from the ways of the world and turning back again to the way of the Lamb, of the cross. We see the difference uh, between Moses and uh, Pharaoh. We see the difference between, oh my goodness, between Jesus and his disciples. As those who are, you know, who is committed to the way of the Lord and who is committed to the ways of this world. And as you follow the disciples early on, they really think they're getting it. And I I know what it means uh, to do things in the way of the Lord. And you just watch them mess it up over and over because they're still thinking in the ways of the world. To the point that Jesus even has to say to Peter at one point, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. We are so easily taken in um, by the ways of this world that we continue to operate in those ways even, um, even when using God's name. It's like, no, no, no. Keep coming back. Keep repenting. Keep your eyes on the cross and what it means uh, not to go out looking um, to destroy anyone who d- disagrees with you. But know that God will take care of all that one day. And instead, that we are called to a life of uh, taking up our cross, of sacrifice, and of service. I am well out of time. We're still going to cover one thing from the seventh, <laughs> uh, seventh bowl. And this is, this is it. This is where it all comes down. You see the earthquake. We've seen a massive earthquake in the news over the last couple of weeks of, um, in Syria and Turkey. And it has just brought to mind just how terrifying it would be if the entire world starts shaking. And especially given that uh, kind of ancient context, like, what, what do you do? <laughs> if the thing that is most stable isn't stable. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25, it says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is what we are to do with this, to know that the earth is the Lord and everything in it, that one day he will do away with all evil finally. And so in the meantime, we not only know and believe this is what is, uh, is the case, but we also worship him with reverence, with awe, that we are awake to who he is in our lives and we remain clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That we do not have to fear when this day comes. But that we would be those saying, you are just in these judgments. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.